1969, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper head east from California on their motorcycles. These easy riders will soon find their lifestyle the enemy of a new America. Earlier, that unbounded passion was being critiqued by the poet Ivor Winters, but he was heading west to California. Somewhere along the road, the two pass as the American hills sprawl out around them in a double vision. I'm here with Eel Brooks on Twitter as Poet Aggressive and on Substack as Eel Brooks. He posts about poetry and has a book of poetry on Amazon, an epic poem titled Finiad, A Brief History of the Future. And he has a second book coming along later in the spring, a sci-fi novel, Half in Verse. And you could read the first couple chapters on a Substack right now, just released. So we're talking about the film Easy Rider from 1969, alongside the poetry of Ivor Winters. This is one of maybe the sort of chronologically looser episodes. So the the Winters poems are going back earlier at the start of the decade, but we're looking at these sort of two visions around the same time of California in particular and the sort of dynamic between that sort of like West Coast and the land of the US and so on. And very sort of interesting to go back through these two works. And so Eilberg, you, you had sort of suggested this. So would you like to give some introduction to the poet and what we'll be looking at? Sure. Well, I originally thought this would be a good topic because it sounded like a joke to me at first. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more it really started making sense. Uh, and they're, they're fairly close in time. The movie, the film came out in 1969. Winters died in 68. Uh, these poems are both from the second half of his career. So maybe written maybe within 20 years of the film, I would guess. I didn't get the dates on the poem. Uh, but Winters is probably more well-known as a critic than as a poet. He only left a very small body of poetry behind. And he's he has a reputation as, you know, he was part of the new critics with, you know, his more famous contemporaries, T.S. Eliot and so on. Uh, but, but he had a much more of a reputation as a real dogmatist. Uh, you know, sometimes you can find him saying that poetry shouldn't express feeling, it ultimately has to express objective truth, or statements like that, that, you know, typically we try to avoid, let's say. Um, but he's, uh, I, I find him interesting because he started his writing career with the images, and later with experimental poetry, he was great friends with, not in personal life, mostly through correspondence and letters with Hart Crane. And he had a, just a deep change partway through his life for a great number of reasons, and, you know, end up writing these very vitriolic essays against free verse poetry and defending um, a more, I guess he called it a more classical composition of verse. But he's also interesting because I think most people who do that end up defending the tradition. They're kind of maybe Russell Kirkian style um, conservatives about literature and they want to defend the canon. Whereas he develops this really niche vision of what a poem is supposed to be based on his sort of first principles. So he ends up, you know, coming down against the Petrarchan tradition in Renaissance poetry, you know, and even against, you know, Shakespeare's sonnets and so on. So he's very iconoclastic in a way, even though he's very traditional by um, by another standard. But he, he spent most of his life in California and there's a lot of California imagery and themes in his poetry. Oh, I thought it was an interesting contrast with Easy Rider where we kind of think of maybe the, the hippie movement as a West Coast movement and the sort of the spirit of California as one of you know, adventure and experimentation. And in the film, they're, you know, they're leaving California and going to New Orleans and sort of taking that spirit of California out across the rest of the country and sort of seeing how it clashes or doesn't clash with the different people they meet. Uh, whereas Winters is someone born in the Midwest and settles in California and his whole idea of what California is is more uh, rural and pastoral. 
you know, he remembers the, in the not the poem we're looking at, but in another one, the vision on vision of, I can't think of the titles, I think on the vision of Pasadena from the hills or something along those lines. You know, he has his childhood memories of looking out over the hills and things. So, yeah, he has a much more pastoral, reserved vision of what California is. So it's, I guess it's interesting to me that the, the film that maybe exemplifies what is more the spirit of California in a, in our standard consciousness, they're leaving, whereas uh, whereas he is going there as his final destination, but has a very different idea of what it is. Yeah, it's an interesting little sort of exchange program in a way. Yeah, I did like in the, in the film this idea of, you know, that they're, you know, sort of very at home in sort of like California. We see them at one point stopping on this commune and so on. And then, you know, as they head east, things go frequently awry in very dramatic ways. And so, yeah, you mentioned, you know, the, his earlier poetry and sort of this image traditions and so on. And I'd, I'd looked at some of them, you know, where it's like, you have these lines like, a woman walking, the evening dying, her dress among low blossoms, among low blossoms, like water humming. And that's very different from what we get in these later poems, which is, you know, sort of broader in image and broader in feeling. Right. And he was he was always clear, even in his later poetry, that it had that he thought poetry had to be founded on experience. I think some of that imagist logic stayed with him, but he ultimately thought it had to have a, a moral apprehension to the to the fact and not just stay on that level of experience. Yeah. And and I guess what well maybe I could start with giving a sort of overview of of the film. To, to give yes. a bigger context to what we're talking about with there. So Easy Writer, directed by Dennis Hopper, stars him, Peter Fonda, and Jack Nicholson. And I think they all sort of contributed into the, the writing of it, which, as I understand, is sort of very haphazard. And a lot of it is sort of after the fact, but they had the basic sort of idea of, of what to do and kind of just filmed. And so they start out, you know, they're, they're in L.A. They had just smuggled in cocaine from Mexico and they get all this money. And so now, you know, they're, you know, the, these sorts of uh, people, they're, they're kind of outside society, you know, we see them, they try to stop in in a motel, and they're not, they're not welcome. You know, the Dennis Hopper character has this like long hair that people are very hostile toward. And, you know, they're, they're both these sorts of, uh, you know, they're motorcyclists. And I had a earlier episode talking about the um, Hunter S. Thompson Hell's Angels book. That was just a couple of years before this, where, you know, it, it had been this sort of real chaotic sort of menace built up in sort of California media and culture and so on. And and so they're, you know, operating in that space. And so they get this, this money through you know, somewhat illicit means. And then uh, they're trying to go and celebrate and head east to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. And, you know, so they stop in at a commune at some point because they pick up a hitchhiker and he needs to sort of get dropped off there. And then they end up passing through New Mexico. They get arrested. They meet this guy, George Hansen, played by Jack Nicholson. He helps them get out of jail. And so they take him with him for a while. He wants to go to this fancy brothel in New Orleans. And, you know, we, we see them again at a diner, really sort of at odds with the sort of mainstream society. And then at night, a, a separate sort of group of locals come and beats them. They kill George. And, you know, they the, the two bikers end up in New Orleans. Finally, they get to enjoy Mardi Gras, sort of. Uh, they take the hitchhikers LSD and things go sort of wrong for them. And, you know, they, they try to sort of make their way back to California, where they came from, where they're sort of, you know, 
things are sort of better for them and don't quite make it. You know, they run into this sort of pickup truck on this road and they both get sort of shot and killed. And so the you have this image of the, the easy writer who kind of just takes life at his ease, has a sense of absolute freedom and the society that is sort of so scared of and hostile to, um, as George says, what they represent, this this freedom. And and so yeah, the, the two poems that you had suggested, The Slow Pacific Swell and, and Judd Sutter by uh, Winters, I thought were interesting sort of pairings with this. Right. I, I think one thing that was very interesting to me about this film, I don't know when it was I first saw it years ago, but I think when I, just the imagery that I was familiar with it, you know, you see them riding on the motorcycles and there's a famous scene where well, one of them is sort of doing, almost doing a handstand on it. Uh, and I expected that to be much more celebratory, whereas it doesn't really glamorize their lives at all. I mean, it doesn't make you sympathetic of the small town people you meet who are, you know, violent or skeptical of them either. But it's uh, yeah, the, there's um, yeah, there's I mean, some scenes where you know they're they're driving along these like vast, beautiful vistas, and then you know it, it seems somewhat appealing in that ways, but they do also show. You know, I remember this scene very early on, you know, they're sleeping outside because they couldn't get in the motel and, you know, the, they're really sort of not doing well physically and, you know, they rely on the sort of stopping in with the this farmer and then this commune to sort of get some food and sort of rough life. Right. And, and I think you see that play out also just in the contrast with the two main characters that, you know, Billy, the one with the long hair, you know, he just wants to take the money and, you know, he talks about, let's just go to Florida and, you know, just live out the rest of our lives in luxury, you know, and he's the one who when they're at the brothel, he's he's completely into it, whereas, you know, Wyatt is only sort of interested in the girls they meet there, but he actually ends up, you know, saying, well, let's get out of here, and he always sort of knows he wants something more than that, he just can't really quite figure out what it is. So I think, you know, just in the contrast between their characters, you see through Wyatt, you know, and his sort of dissociation with Billy throughout the movie, that there is sort of a self-criticism of it also, that he knows what they're doing really isn't all there is to life. Yeah, he, he keeps having these moments where he's like not really into things and gets called out for being quiet, not really like partaking as, as much and as other people. And, you know, then, but but also, you know, uh, Billy is is sort of uh, this, this more paranoid figure. You know, he's always worried about, you know, what if someone is like, what if they someone finds the money and they take it or what if this and what if that? Right. And, you know, so Wyatt is, is has this really trusting character that, you know, he thinks, you know, we'll, we'll all he, he has um he's trying to I think I think you're right that he wants something more. But he also I think really embraces some of that communal spirit of the sort of movement and has this real sense about just like, you know, trusting people, being open to experience, just sort of being one with, you know, all these people they encounter and really doesn't find that mirrored back in most of the places that they go. And, and so there's that struggle. Um, and, and, you know, this, this ultimately does end up getting George killed. And, you know, he's also the one that sort of talks him into trying marijuana. He'd been sort of wary about it. And, and so I think, I think there's sort of an interesting sort of story arc with him where he's, he's trying to take things much more at met at ease you know, there's one scene where, where Billy is like trying to rush them to get back on the road and the hitchhiker like, you know, just puts a hand up, like slow down. And why it's like, you know, I, I also get your sense of time not mattering, but we do have to go. And, you know, that, that ends up not working out. And so he ends up losing both George and then Billy. And I think, you know, you know, he, he quickly 
sort of reaches the same fate at the end. But I think, you know, he has a, in that, that moment before, I think has a real sense of guilt in a way, you know, goes and gives Billy his, his leather jacket and, you know, puts it on him and tries to go after the, the truck or to get help or whatever. And I, I'd be curious to know what you think the role of all the, the long sort of landscape scenes. I mean, it's not just landscapes, it's them riding on the road, but, you know, a lot of times that's almost half the movie. You see more of that than you see of the dialogue or the story where there's you know, several very long shots where you just play music and you see, you know, the American countryside. I think it's interesting to compare in uh, the first Winter's poem, The Slow Pacific Swell. It starts out in the first stanza. He's talking about viewing the ocean from a distance from up on a high place. And it's in direction. He says, this is illusion, the artificer of quiet. Distance holds me in a vice and holds the ocean steady to my eyes. So he's talking about seeing, seeing nature from afar. It seems safe and it seems, you know, it's held in a vice, but that's the illusion. Leading into the second stanza where he talks about, you know, having almost drowned at one point and says, this is the real ocean. That was the ocean. From the ship we saw grave whales for miles, the long sweep of the jaw, the blunt head plunging clean above the wave. And he says, the reality is the danger when you're, when you're down in it, whereas seeing, seeing the landscape, seeing the sea from a distance is the illusion. I think that's an interesting contrast with what you see in the film where the more peaceful scenes, the ones with less conflict are the ones where they're just writing, where you do hold nature in a distant vision. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a sense about like this idea that, you know, you just keep keep moving forever and like, you know, that things sort of can't quite catch up with you until, you know, ultimately they do very suddenly. But I think I think that there is that idea of like, you know, the just moving this freedom to move through the country, you know, that they don't have much, you know, that's, that's part of the sort of thing with the, the motorcycle, right, is that, you know, you have like a car or something, you can load it up with all kinds of things, but they just have like these small sacks of the, the very basics and sort of, you know, just move along and so on. And yeah, I mean, it, it does give these very beautiful, desirable sort of images of all these different sort of segments of the American landscape. And yeah, I mean, I did think about that as well with that first bit of the slow Pacific swell where we're seeing that that sort of distance. And then what's interesting with that poem is how, you know, he, he sort of sees it at a distance and then gets sort of closer in and you know eventually becomes a part of that world and then with uh john sutter we see this this image of you know this sort of uh kind of godly patriarchal figure who is already one with the land which is then corrupted by these outside forces of people who come in and start mining for gold and blowing things up and digging and just trying to extract value in uh, the most sort of basic sense from this sort of beautiful landscape. And so I think that there's an interesting dynamic of, of that in the film where there are, you know, these sort of easy riders kind of just cruising around and sort of being, you know, free moving agents through the American landscape. But also the whole thing is, is sort of propped up on the idea that they had smuggled drugs from Mexico into LA and, you know, made made a bunch of money off of cocaine. And there, there are sort of explicit anxieties in the film about, you know, the sort of ethics of that where, uh, you know, George is this alcoholic and, and really struggles from that. And Wyatt talks him into trying marijuana. And George is really sort of reluctant about this and, and anxious where he's, you know, saying like, well, you know, I shouldn't because, you know, I have the sort of personality and, and so on. And he's like, Wyatt's like, oh, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. 
and George is like, you know, but you know, I feel like it's like a gateway to harder stuff, right? And why it's like, no, 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 you know, whatever. And, you know, George doesn't end up living long enough to really have to worry about any of that, really. But I think there's there is that there's that implicit sort of critique in there about, you know, this, uh, the sense that that these sorts of drugs that they're selling and making their money on are destructive and that their sort of easy relationship to all of this, the sort of carefree sense is, you know, not just they're not just at odds with the sort of mainstream society, like the cops in the diner or something, but the that the even someone like George, who is sort of friendly with them, that they're, they're sort of um, oblivious to, you know, this possibility that not everyone can quite live it as carefree as them and maybe you know sort of shouldn't be getting caught up in anything like that and it's interesting also you're saying that their life is almost defined by motions i think in the poems there's almost a skepticism of motion and in the, the slow pacific swell he talks about even though he doesn't he stays away from the ocean now still he knows at night the pacific swell stirs on the sand sleeping to sink away withdrawing land that he knows the ocean's constantly coming up and eating away the land where he says, you know, a landsman, I, the sea is but a sound. And he defines himself by living, by saying, I live on stable land that's sort of unmoving. And similarly, you know, John Sutter, I was the patriarch of the shining land of the blonde summer and metallic rain. Men vanished at the motion of my hand. And when I beckoned, they would come again. That he has a stable settlement. He has a fortress. He's sort of in control of his environment. And if there's motion, it's motion that's all sort of controlled from a a central, you know, a central location. There's a almost the opposite view of motion between the film and the poems, you could say. Yeah. Would you, would you want to read through the slow Pacific swell and then we'll sort of dive deeply into that as well now? Sure, that'd be fine. Far out of sight forever stands the sea, bound in the land with pale tranquility. When a small child, I watched from a hill at 30 miles or more. The vision still lies in the eye, soft blue and far away. The rain has washed the dust from April day. Paintbrush and lupine lie against the ground. The wind above the hilltop has the sound of distant water in unbroken sky. Dark and precise, the little streamers ply firm in direction. They seem not to stir. That is illusion, the artificer of quiet. Distance holds me in a vice and holds the ocean steady to my eyes. Once when I rounded flattery, the sea hove its loose weight like sand to tangle me upon the washing deck. To crush the whole, subsiding, dragged flesh at the bone. The skull felt the retreating wash of dreaming hair, half drenched in disillusion. I lay bare. I scarcely pulled myself erect. I came back slowly, slowly, knew myself the same. That was the ocean. From the ship we saw gray whales for miles. The long sweep of the jaw. The blunt head plunging clean above the wave. And one rose in a tent and gave a darkening shudder. Water fell away. The whale stood shining and then sank in spray. A landsman I, the sea is but a sound. I would be near it on a sandy mound and hear the steady rushing of the deep while I lay, sting while I lay stinging in the sand with sleep. I have lived inland long. The land is numb. It stands beneath the feet and one may come walking securely till the sea extends its limber margin and precision ends. By night, a chaos of commingling power. The whole Pacific hovers hour by hour. The slow Pacific swell stirs on the sand, sleeping to sink away, withdrawing land, heaving and wrinkled in the moon and blind, or gathers seaward, ebbing out of mind. I really love that um, really sort of sublime perspective on the sea where it's like, you know, he's like presented, the speaker's presented as really longing for the sea all his life and yet never really quite 
can reach it. You know, by the end, he's still a landsman. And the sea is this place where precision ends, it's this chaos of power and so on. And the, the only place we re- really get to be sort of one with that space that he's longing for is in this image in the middle of the shipwreck you know that it's only in this this absolute destruction you know the crushing of the skull and the dissolution and all of that that you can sort of really sort of be in this space fully right and it's interesting in in this poem and also in his criticism you know one of his great themes is that he has a he has a fear of the loss of control and the rise of you know irrational emotion you know which is part of why he wrote so strongly against the romantics but it's interesting that even though he's a landsman the ocean stays with him even in his dreams you know it kind of haunts him at night he can't escape it and he you know and he still lives there where he has the vision of it he doesn't you know move to the midwest and just be done with it forever yeah yeah you read uh him crit- critiquing a bit you know like with manic you know sort of free-flowing boundlessness that that sort of open form of poetry isn't really a a way of capturing the sprawling nature of the United States, but that, you know, it's about, you know, the sort of framing of it, but you still want that sort of metrical quality in the poetry and so on. I was reminded a bit though of Byron in the beginning, uh, Byron has this image about, you know, that the this sort of cherishing of the sort of childhood images where we recognize this like image of say like a mountain and and embrace embrace it in the mind's embrace and he he has the same sort of thing where you know he's coming at this from a distance and cherishing this sort of uh childlike view of the wide sea on the horizon and so i think that there's like two problems one is the fact that you know the sea is hostile in many ways to humans you know we can't sort of breathe underwater that it's you know the dangers of the waves and and all of this that it's really not you can't actually sort of get that much closer to it than he was. But also this sense about, you know, that he can't really reframe that childlike image into a, a more mature stance, I think is, is one of the struggles here, you know, it, it, but but then he has this this counter to that, you know, I have lived inland long, the land is numb, it stands beneath the feet and one may come walking securely till the sea extends its liberal margin and precision ends. The, there's this dynamic of the sort of numb land that sort of deprives him of, of feeling that his feeling is so wrapped up in these images of the sea, but also the there's something where he doesn't, he doesn't have a sort of mature control over what happens there and and so it's like caught between the sort of absence of feeling or the sort of overabundance and there's no real sort of settling place in between that he can find other than that briefly this this idea of the the artifice in the artificer of quiet distance holds me in a vice and holds the ocean steady to my eyes that you know that artificial look at of the sea at the sort of safe remove and you know this this paintbrush image above as well that that there's something in that that is sort of makes it palatable that sort of redeems the experience or or something right i wonder if you know he doesn't necessarily in his criticism there's not a a lot of self-criticism he you know took more and more and more strong views as he got older but in this poem i almost think the land is numb comes across as self-criticism that he's not he's fearful of the uncontrolled the kind of chaotic infinity of the ocean but he's not entirely satisfied with where he is and he still wants the ocean in some way you know is it i think maybe wouldn't be satisfied if he could completely control it is you know numb isn't exactly a word with positive connotation 
and also the, there's something really going on with the this middle bit of this very uh kind of gruesome gory imagery you know subsiding dragged flesh at the bone the skull felt the retreating wash of dreaming hair you get back to that that what you had mentioned earlier he stays dreaming of the sea you know the the dreaming hair but then it's also this this sense of very visceral physical destruction and so yeah i mean the the title image of the slow pacific swell is is interesting because it's like it doesn't really situate it at you know out front as like this very like fast powerful force because that's not how it works but in its slowness but also vastness it, it has this sort of un sort of matchable power and you know he's caught up in this sort of sublime remove from it you know it's, so he starts with this line far out of sight forever stands the sea bounding the land with pale tranquility and you know th- there's that infinite sort of distance between him and the sea as this sort of object of longing and you know it's what's interesting in john sutter is how you know the the people don't have that sense of sort of infinite distance or the sort of disconnect between themselves and you know the land or you know the sort of natural world where you know they they think well you know it's just very it's very practical you know just sort of dig blow things up sift through this and find you know these sort of objects of value the gold in particular he talks about the the gold as an evil with no human sense disperse the mind to concentrate the will so the kind of both his settlement and also the the gold diggers are trying to take their wealth from the land but the gold is somehow inhuman i kind of when he says disperse the mind i think he means that no there's no longer the well he has in the settlement where sort of human ends and human thought are cultivating the land into something that you know makes sense long term yeah mm. I'll, I'll, I'll i can read out john sutter but maybe before we move on so what do, you, what do you make of the end of the slow pacific swell where he says sleeping to sink away withdrawing land heaving and wrinkled in the moon and blind and gathers seaward ebbing out of mind well the wrinkled in the moon is interesting in the first stanza we have the line the wind above the hilltop has sound of distant water in unbroken sky so he already starts out by making a connection between the ocean and the sky through the sound of the wind and here is sort of pulling into the moon i mean obviously it's also on some simpler level the, the moon is there because that makes the tide come in there's definitely a connection between the ocean and the sky that comes back at the end that's there in the beginning also yeah and also also this idea of it ebbing out of mind and sort of blindness where there's some sense of you know that he has his dreams a bit but there's also this image at the end of maybe that sort of going away and you know so his relationship to the, that memory and those dreams and so on is is very interesting and maybe maybe we'll look at John Sutter and sort of see what's going on in this other poem as well. So he writes, I was the patriarch of the shining land of the blonde summer and metallic grain. Men vanished at the motion of my hand. And when I beckoned, they would come again. The earth grew dense with grain at my desire. The shade was deepened at the springs and streams, moving in dust that clung like pillared fire. The gathering herds grew heavy in my dreams. Across the mountains, naked from the heights, down to the valley, broken settlers came. And in my houses, feasted through the nights, rebuilt their sinews and assumed name. In my clear rivers, my own men discerned the motive for the ruin and the crime. 
gold heavier than earth, a wealth unearned, loot for two decades from the heart of time, metal intrinsic value deep and dense, pre-animate, inimitable, still, real, but an evil with no human sense, dispersed the mind to concentrate the will, grained by alchemical change the humankind, turned from themselves to rivers and to rocks, with dynamite broke metal unrefined, measured their moons by geologic shock. With knives they dug the metal out of stone, turned rivers back for gold through ages piled, drove knives to hearts and faced the gold alone, valley and river ruined and reviled, reviled and ruined me my servant slew, strangled him from the fig tree by my door. When they had done what fury bade them do, I was a cursing beggar, stripped and sore. What end impersonal, what breathless age, incontinent of quiet and of years, what calm catastrophe will yet assuage this final drought of penitential tears. Yeah, well, just if anyone hears this and is interested, John Sutter, I think there's a recording on the Poetry Foundation website of Winters reading this. This image of the humankind turned from themselves to rivers and rocks, which in you know some sense, maybe a sort of very romantic sense, right? There's something in that image that seems very sort of natural and positive, where it's like, you know, you want this deep attention to the natural world and the the, the movement of the river and the sort of, you know, deep time embedded in the rocks and all of these things. But in context here, that's not what's happening, where it's this complete turning away from the self that is winter's focus here, where they're caught up in the rivers and the rocks and not for any sort of, you know, aesthetic purpose or anything like that. But it's it's purely because they're seeking the nuggets of gold in there and completely lose touch of with themselves in you know completely just sort of wanting to extract value and value and value to uh seemingly no real end and what was interesting with that is is looking back to the film where the so they they get a lot of this money smuggling this cocaine and we we have this whole scene at the beginning of them sort of tucking it away in this tube sort of tucking that away within the motorcycle gas sort of line and uh you know nothing really comes of that they they never really have a payoff to that it's just something that they have there as this sort of potential but it doesn't it doesn't end up doing anything for them right i was thinking uh when the gold first comes into the poem he calls it a wealth unearned loot for two decades from the heart of time but the phrase wealth unearned you know you definitely feel that way about wyatt and billy i mean not that they literally did nothing but you know they're trying to make one big sale of cocaine and then they're going to be set for the rest of their lives it's a very similar attitude to the the gold rush that you're just going to go out and you know maybe you'll be the lucky one who gets yeah, who gets the gold and then you'll be set for life without, you know, without ever really having to build anything. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, not just digging, but then also it creates this uh, competition between people, the sense of wrath, you know, you have this sort of murder that occurs and, you know, it ends with this, this uh, big question about, you know, what end impersonal, what breathless aid, you know, what calm catastrophe will will assuage all this. And the poem is really sort of struggling around with the sense of like, you know, where, where do you even go from here? What is sort of what possible payoff is there? And so I think it's interesting to, you know, look back at the beginning and, and try to make sense of, um, well, you know, what is Winters looking back toward exactly? And so you have the, this, um, 
you know, the speaker is this seems to me the sort of godlike patriarch of the shining land, you know, who has the sort of absolute power to like move people around, you know, bring rain as needed and grow the earth dense with grain and place the shade in these lovely springs and streams and so on. And then there's sort of just this exhaustion that comes in and doesn't appreciate the shade and doesn't really sort of appreciate the sort of wealth of food, but is entirely just sort of concerned with the presence of, you know, the sort of the gold and and so on. But what what did you make of the, the sort of like speaker figure, the patriarch of the shining land who is later sort of brought down to be this cursing beggar stripped and sore. Well, I, I think the line in the last stanza, the end impersonal, is somewhat interesting. It's I think related to the line I quoted before about the gold, evil with no human sense. That somehow the land as John Sutter cultivates it is humanizing the land. It's bringing, you know, human intelligence into nature. Whereas the love of the sort of impersonal, you know, the stone and the rock just for its own sake, for its, you know, supposed implicit intrinsic wealth, you know, ends up kind of depersonalizing Sutter also. And I I guess that's somewhat interesting in terms of his criticism of the romantics, that he doesn't want art to be an expression of personality. He also doesn't want it to be, you know, depersonalizing either. Right, yeah. I mean, so that, you know, not just the personal... Uh, But also like, you know, I think there's a real contrast between the figures in this poem and the figure in Slow Pacific Swell, where, you know, it's not strictly about the the personal there, but it is this person who does feel very strongly and has this deep yearning. And, you know, what's really shocking in John Sutter is how, um, you know, you get sort of none of that, that, you know, we start with, as I was saying, you know, this image of the, the shaded springs and streams and so on. And then when we get to the gold rush, it's like, you know, there, there's no image of anyone enjoying the shade. They're just sifting through the rivers. And, and even, even if I'm enjoying the wealth they get from the gold, there's only really images of them destroying what he built. You don't see, oh, but this guy, he made out with the gold and did something good with his life after. You know, you don't see anything of that kind of enjoyment either. Yeah, there, there, there's a sort of sense of deep loneliness that, you know, faced the gold alone and you know, caught up in this sort of deep sinfulness where it's like, you know, the they're digging through with knives and it's it's portrayed as this, you know, explicitly violent images, drove knives to hearts. Uh and you know, and part of that is is also there is there is actual literal violence, you know, between people digging up the gold and then killing people for the gold. And so I think I think there's, you know, sort of a, a lot going on here that is distinct from the sort of like slow dreaming figure sort of caught up lapping in the waves of the the coast and and the other poem but what's interesting is that you know that's poem is entirely isolated as well that it's, it's just this one person caught up in his own head and his own sort of perception of of the sea and, and his memory and all of that. And then this is this is at a sort of social scale. And I mean, it's it's interesting to think with Easy Rider how you know you have these people and and you know by themselves they're kind of just you know okay, like lounging around by the fire at night and getting high and joking around and stuff. But there, there's this real tension where, you know, 
on the one hand, the, the, the society is hostile to them, right? They go into the diner. The waitress never serves them. The sort of locals are staring them down angrily and talking about their hair and thinking about like what sort of violence they might do to them. You know, the, the only sort of positive attention is is in these sort of young women who are sort of ogling them, you know, talking about which one is most attractive and, and wanting to, you know, get a ride on the motorcycles and so on. And But, you know, at the same time, I don't know, there's this this communal sense that operates on the the commune scale where Wyatt says, of course, we can give a ride to these people, even though we're kind of pressed for time because, you know, we're here, we're eating their food. And there's that very limited sense in which it sort of works out. But they don't actively offer anything outward to the wider society. They kind of just roll in from Mexico they sell the cocaine and then they just sort of want to go off on by themselves and get high and have fun. And, and so there, there, I think there's a two-way bit to that, but I think there is similar sort of critique going on in both the sort of John Sutter poem and the film where it's like the this sort of impossibility of this, this sort of idealistic sort of peaceful existence when you really sort of broaden out to this wider social scale and bring in all these people with their own goals and, and so on that ends up at odds with each other. Right. I think that is one way that maybe John Sutter is more connected to the film that both, both the poems are poems of anxiety where Winter's expressing his anxiety about forces of irrationality that are sort of going to be destructive of civilization or of our own private conscience in some way. But those forces in the slow Pacific swell are sort of impersonal and natural forces. It's the ocean. Whereas in John Sutter, those forces are, are men. You know, who come in and do things, right? But I think maybe what's left out of these poems, he doesn't necessarily talk about how that order is preserved. Whereas I think you can see in the film, you know, if we take the writers as maybe also being forces of irrationality, they're also largely harmless. Whereas the people who want to preserve order are often, you know, very violent with very little provocation. You know, in, in John Sutter, we don't, we see him as the patriarch of the shining land, but we don't see, you know, that to build that, to build that land, he, you know, had, uh, you know, Mexican servants that he kept in, in cages and things like this, you know, that he wasn't you know, a nice guy altogether, let's say, you know, but you don't see that in the poem. Whereas I think in the film, you do kind of see that, that there are people who want to preserve order and maybe have good intentions in that, or maybe even are right in some way, you know, but also are maybe not the best people. Yeah, there, there's an interesting scene at the beginning of the film where, you know, so they're, they're these figures who really live on their own time and do their own thing and, and, you know, free within the sort of hippie-ish cultural context and within the sort of motorcyclist sort of cultural context. But they also stop in at this farm and Wyatt says to the the patriarch of, of that land, you know, it's not every man that can live off the land, you know, do your own thing on your own time, you should be proud. And this goes back to what you were saying before, I think we're like, he really has this gives off the sense that he wants more than what he has. But the, it's an interesting look at uh, a life that's somewhat parallel to theirs, but has much more stability, you know, and this is large sprawling family, they built up as well. And you know, they're both kind of just out there by themselves. I was kind of curious what the that early farmstead scene you know how it plays into the larger movie because the other people they meet you know the commune that's where they get the lsd and when they meet george he gives them the address of the brothel so all the other people they meet in some direct way build up to 
kind of the culmination of the movie in New Orleans. But the um, farmstead scene early on is kind of isolated. It doesn't really seem to uh, to build the story in the same, unless I'm forgetting something. No, I think it just sort of sets up some of the reliance on, on others to some extent, you know, the the different sort of personalities, you know, why, why it is very sort of common understanding, you know, sort of welcoming of people in a way, whereas, you know, Billy is, is always sort of on edge and really wanting to like keep moving, keep moving and is is very much afraid of the, of this sort of like setting down you know literal roots kind of life and and we see that again at the the commune where like even that he's sort of not quite comfortable with where we see the people showing up and they're planting seeds and the you know that there's the sense of like you know they have to stay there until the crops grow and you know that might be a bit of a struggle as well because it doesn't rain much there and you know billy is is running around freaking out he's like we have to get out of here this is you know i can't handle this and you know why why it is so much more at ease there but he's also at ease on the farm i think he represents a bit more of an an ideal whereas you know billy is sort of really like deeply hippie-ish character but he sort of i think struggles a bit more in almost every context but but it's interesting you know you see these few moments of hospitality it sets up this really sharp contrast to the ending which it's really interesting from a sort of storytelling perspective where, you know, there's very few films that I've seen where the sort of climax is, you know, similar to what you're saying, like, it's completely really not in like a very like straightforward sense set up by anything, you know, that, that they're, they're just really killed randomly, you know, at, out of nowhere by complete strangers never seen before in the film. It's not like they've wronged them in some way, like, in an earlier act or anything it's just like we've seen throughout the film the sense of like people see them they see the motorcycles they see billy's long hair and they're like you know let's mess with these guys and we're really kind of just trying to scare them ends up hitting billy and then i think they sort of feel like they need to finish the job right Um, i think they're afraid they're going to get arrested of why it goes and tells someone what happened so they think they have to take him out also. Yeah. And then you 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 end with that that image of the sort of riderless motorcycle with the wheel blown off flying through the air. And that's that sense of freedom in a way, but also that destruction that you kind of see with the strip shipwreck in the middle of the slow Pacific swell, where it's like you have this idea of just like completely, you know, dissolving into the landscape and just cruising along. And the but at the same time like the absolute sort of manifestation of that ideal is this sort of gruesome death in both of those i think i think is really interesting i also like there's this interesting um sort of visual editing technique they do in, in the film i don't know the term for it but we're just like this rapid flashes between different images you know there, there's a there's an early example where it's like he's looking at his watch before they get going and ends up sort of just throwing it into the dirt and gets rid of it you know and sort of sets up this idea that time was really important for them in terms of making this meeting but otherwise they don't care about it but it's interesting because they don't show him oh taking off the watch and throwing it it's just this image of him looking at the watch image of him image of the watch image of him and then the watch is in the ground and it just sort of 
flips between these rapidly. And and so you have you have this, from what I understand, you know, this, this sort of application of, of more avant-garde film techniques into like telling the story and, and so on. But you know, there's something really sort of interesting and, and calming about this this film that, you know, doesn't really have, you know, there's not like a buildup of like, oh, this is like the the enemy of the film. Right. And you know, so on, you know, because I was thinking like a couple of years earlier, you have Bonnie and Clyde and you know, th- that has much more of a, a traditional story structure where it's like you have this one police officer chasing them for a long time and, and plotting right. their downfall in a way. And this is it's just, just like this completely random chant. Right. And insofar as the film does have a buildup, you know, it really culminates in the LSD scene in the cemetery in the French Quarter. But that's just sort of a bad trip and they all freak out and then they leave again. You know, uh, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't reconcile anything that came before it or tie it together. I mean, it ties it together in terms of, you know, at some point they're going to do the LSD because someone gave it to them. But it doesn't really tie or reconcile any of the themes in any final way. I hadn't really thought about the watch scene, though, that you mentioned near the beginning. There's um, in, in Winter's essay on Moby Dick, he makes a, a big deal about Captain Ahab destroying all of his uh, all of his machinery for navigation, that he destroys all these devices and he's just going to you know chase the whale by intuition or something. I think that's maybe he sees that similar image in Moby Dick and, you know, sees it as very problematic or dangerous that they're, you know, destroying these sort of mechanical devices by which we can measure and control things. And they're really doing the that, that's a big part of his interpretation of Moby Dick in that essay is that scene. So it's interesting that they're doing almost the same thing, not with navigation, but with the watch that has a similar function that they can, you know, time that maybe on its own is just a fluid flow, you know, it's still something that we use to break it apart and measure it. Yeah, their their whole measure seems to be like, do they make it in time for Mardi Gras or not? Right. And ultimately they do. And and yes, I mean, the, the, the acid scene is interesting because it's sort of the culmination of their journey. And it starts out, they're having you know, fun time at Mardi Gras, but then once it sort of really kicks in and and all, you know, they, they have this bad trip and it goes sort of poorly. And then you have Wyatt after sort of talking to Billy, like we, we screwed it all up. This was a big mistake. It was a mess. And it turns out, you know, they shouldn't have ever even gone is, is sort of his sense. And, you know, we, we started out talking about this idea of like, you know, this sort of central place of, of California connecting these two works. And, you know, there's there's that sense of going back to landscapes, right? There's something really desirable and, and moving back into the land and exploring America, but then it's also like, this isn't where the two of them are are welcome. You know, that they struggle to get hotels in California, but they do have some, you know, spaces for them, but the beyond that is, is is hostile to them. And, you know, it's, it's sort of just interesting seeing the this idea of, you know, the, the kind of figures who, you know, can thrive in these, these different contexts and like the limits of those lifestyles and, and so on. Right. I think I, something that I was thinking about is not just who can thrive in the different contexts, but who's more, maybe not admirable, but who's more compelling. I, I look at the speaker in slow pacific swell you know at the end he's sort of the land is numb he's not really satisfied with where he is uh and he's not he's holding back the you know rational powers of the ocean in some way but he's not really going to do anything that anyone will remember whereas you look at Wyatt and billy in some sense yes they're self-destructive but and also they're obviously people who are very skeptical of them and don't like them but you know, you also look at when they go to the commune and then the young girls in the diner, people are also drawn to them, that their life is very compelling. Oh, I think it's interesting yeah. in that way. We can talk about 
the uh, the forces of irrationality is something destructive, but there's also something that's always always going to maybe draw us more than you know someone who just sort of holds back that force, but you know leads a boring life. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's something interesting with the the, the generational gap and the sort of uh, draw of, of the young women and, and also the women on the commune as well are drawn to them. But it's interesting to see the sense of destruction that follows from that is that, you know, they, they bring in George Hansen, who's really not part of their world. They're like, do you even have a helmet? And he's like, oh yeah, I have a helmet. But it's like this like kind of weird one. And I think it's his high school football helmet that his mom made. And so they bring him in and, you know, he ends up dead and they sort of bring in the, the these these two prostitutes and they end up on this bad trip and it's a whole mess and then you know they have their own fate and so on and it's like i do think there's there's a this sense of we we see through the the young women you know i mean part of why they would want to live this way right because it's like you know it does attract that sort of desirable attention but then it's also like you know the outside has some sense of of desiring the their world you know presumably none of those women are going to go on and you know, get caught up in the motorcycle world themselves. But from a distance, it's sort of appealing for like this moment to like fantasize about that life. And this is what George is talking about when they they get him high as he says, you know, this used to be a hell of a great country. I don't know what went wrong. You know, these people, they're scared of you but not so much of you, but it's of what you represent, that sense of absolute freedom. And, you know, I think the there's a sense of, and, and, you know, maybe this goes back to like, you know, this is criticism of like the American romantics and such, but like that there used to be this sense of absolute passion that sort of really thrived in America that is, is sort of going away. And, you know, in that way, this whole like prize of these like motorcycle figures and the sort of 60s counterculture isn't really this new thing so much but it's sort of in a way like this dying out of you know this this older american way of life that you know is being sort of very forcefully killed off by you know these um figures like the people in the diner and the people in the pickup truck and so on right i mean i I think most people of my generation we associate communes with hippies but i mean possibly to the beginning of the country certainly to the time of the civil war there were you know commune movements in the united states intentional communities, you know, small sort of socialist groups that would buy land at different places. Um, I, I think people maybe do not realize that that's something that probably has been with us most of our history and isn't necessarily just sort of part of the hippie counterculture. Yeah. Did another episode, I talked about this film Flashback from uh, 1990. And, and so Dennis Hopper is in there as well. So this is, you know, 20 something years on. And, and it's explicitly about looking back at, you know, the, the sort of countercultural moment and the, um, you know, Hopper's character there is someone who was like this legend of the hippie culture and these people on these communes sort of like adored him and his speeches and so on. And, you know, then you get to the 90s and that moment is sort of definitively ended and that's sort of what's going on in the, in the film. And so it's interesting to, to look ahead a bit to that as well. It's like, you know, that the, the sense of like this, there, there's there's some ways in which we still really draw on and inherit aspects of the, this sort of culture, but it's also, there are elements of this where it's like, this is the ending of things that had been there before. But the, there, there's what's, which I guess interesting with the slow Pacific swell is the way it presents that longing feels so, um, you know, it's it's so removed in a way from any w- sort of one specific cultural moment that it, it just sort of feels so 
sort of eternal in a way, the sense of like, you know, you see this vast power of the sea at a distance as a child, and it creates this permanent longing and this lingering murmur and dream that's never quite achievable. And so this specific thing of like the the motorcyclists and their absolute freedom, I think is is some manifestation of something of that same energy, but we see as well there the um, that destructive energy. Right, but I, I think it's interesting, you know, in, in the final scene, you see, you know, the motorcycle burning and everything. You're not really made to admire either of the characters throughout the film, but you still feel like, you know, there's been some kind of misunderstanding that there is something, something that you're drawn to that you're, you're sad to see it just sort of burn up for no reason. Uh, and certainly in terms of, you know, later culture, they, you know, if not the characters in this movie, then people like them remain iconic in some way. I, I think that's interesting to put in terms of Winters and his criticism or similar criticism of the romantics and the sort of idea of romanticism as uncontrolled emotion. No matter how many times I could read, you know, In Defense of Reason or his other books, you know, where I think on some theoretical level that makes sense, that ultimately I think the English romantics are often going to be the poetry that attracts most people the most direct way. You know, just like I think there's going to be an immediate appeal to, you know, seeing these sort of wild men riding on motorcycles through the countryside, you know, where all we see in that is just irrationality and destruction. You know, we miss something, right? So even if we don't admire them, you know, I think when you, if you feel certain sadness, when you see the motorcycle just burning up in the end, you realize, ah, there's you know, whatever is bad about them and whatever is destructive about them. You know, I, I've missed something if I see that, I think that's all there is there. It's like, I would think that I missed something if I thought that was all there was to to Wordsworth, right? Yeah, I, I think that there's something to that as, as well. And, you know, that I think is, you know, John Sutter, for instance, it's like, is very critical of all these people, but it's still, you know, Winters is still sad to see them killing each other. And I think there, there's something really to that where it's like, I think there, there's a sense of critique to the film, but that's also coupled with the sense of like, you know, that the really overt hostility is also not the sort of desirable solution. Right, I think about Winter's sort of hostility to the ideas of absolute freedom. But I, I think if, if we really followed Winter's, the, um, the canon of English literature would be very boring. You know, because he's he's against epics and he, he's against allegory. He's against Shakespeare, largely. Not against his plays, but he's against Shakespeare's sonnets because they're Petrarchan. And he's in favor of the short poem. Poems should be short and they should, you know, be clear and they should make sense, which is part of what I admire about him because I think I was originally taught that poems didn't need to make sense to be clear at all or that rational arguments in poetry was a bad thing. So he's had a, a great influence on me that way. But I, I think if we've actually followed him, English, lit English literature would be quite boring, you you know, we would almost need the Western canon without Homer or some other some other absurdity. I think in the same way, if you know, if you watch this film and just say, ah, look at these self-destructive people, they they just burn up for nothing. Similarly, you're missing something. Yeah, you you gotta have that sort of balance between things where you know some something. There, there, there's this, I think, the struggle of you know in the slow Pacific swells. Like, how do you keep something of that that longing and that tension alive? without being subsumed and without retreating into numb land. And so I think, you know, winter stakes very strong sort of claims, but I do think it's, you know, there's a useful exchange where it's like the sense I think is expressed in the poem that there's no really no sense of like, there's this 
some solid definitive spot that in which you could stand forever and that gives you like the perfect vantage into everything but there's a there's this whole push and pull and really sort of eternal striving to stay somewhere in that middle and, and not wander off into the extremes of, of the sea or the land and its associations with that duller early childhood and so you know i mean i think the idea of like winters going off to california and you know just working as a professor at stanford for you know decades isn't really you know it's not like a rebellious act exactly but but there is something uh what would the word be you know defiant in a way of you know staking out a space and and trying to you know imagine a space for a certain sort of art and a certain sort of life that isn't strictly you know affirmed widely you know even to the extent of like critiquing shakespeare's sonnets and so on right in, in a certain way he's much more defiant and revolutionary than most countercultural types are you know for a professor at stanford to you know not maybe for reasons of sort of marxist or feminist criticism like some people might critique the canon but you know within within a very you know conservative view of english literature to be you know so radically against the standard standard judgments in some ways he's much more revolutionary than a countercultural figure might be yeah there's really a lot of interesting thematic connections between these poems and the film that I wasn't necessarily expecting originally. It was just that they both had a California connection and were both roughly the same time period that made me made me draw them together. So I was very surprised just to find how many actual thematic connections there really were. But uh, I, I guess just as a closing remark, I'd say I would encourage anyone who's interested in literary criticism to, to read Winters, not because I think he's right, but because he's wrong in such a unique way that you'll benefit from struggling with him. If anyone wants to find me on Substack, I'll have the first couple chapters of my novel up there soon. I'm also always happy to take recommendations for poems. If you have a theme you'd like me to write on, I, I enjoy doing that, assuming it's something I feel competent to write on. So uh, yeah, let me know. I'd love to hear from someone. <laughs>